0: this podcast is brought to you by Belong, Australia's first carbon-neutral telco and winner of Finder's Green Telco of the Year 2020.
1: Welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm your host, Alice Stoltz, and yes, I have a bit of a cold, I'm fine, but I do sound a bit croaky. In this episode, we ask the question, will Australia's property market stay hot? And then we explore one of the most unusual but intriguing home features in the country, the ACT's energy efficiency rating, and whether other states should adopt it too. Is the hot property market here to stay, or are things starting to slow down? After rapid price growth across nearly every part of the country this year, we're starting to hear rustles in the wind that the property market may shift gears soon. The winter market is usually when property takes a break, but will it this year? To discuss the year that we've had thus far, and what we're likely to see through the next three to six months, we're joined by the independent economist, Saul Eslake. Saul, welcome back to Property Unpacked.
2: Thank you for having me, Alison it's nice to be here.
1: Now, so we've seen extremely hot market conditions at the beginning of this year. Are there any signs of cooling in those conditions or is price growth and demand still a runaway train in your opinion?
2: Well, there certainly doesn't seem to have been any slowing in the demand for properties in recent weeks clearance rates have been pretty close to 80% in the major capital cities and prices have continued to increase over May at much the same rate that they had done in March and April. Real estate agents appear to be suggesting that one of the factors keeping upward pressure on prices in addition to high levels of demand is a shortage of stock. That seems to be especially acute in regional areas rather than in capital cities. And that reflects what I suspect may be one of the lasting consequences of the COVID pandemic, that there seems now to be a heightened interest on the part of a broader range of Australians in living in regional centres. Mm. Uh, and of course, people who do live in those cities don't seem to be as anxious to move to the big smokers may have been for similar reasons. And that seems to be maintaining some significant upward pressure on prices in regional Australia that Uh, most of the last 30 years haven't seen anything like the upward movements in prices over an extended period that have been so much of a feature of our big capital cities.
1: Mm. We are still seeing a lot of strength in those metro markets, as you touched on. And one curious thing I noticed, I saw a lot of properties sell prior to auction. And I wondered if that could be a very unofficial indication of a bit of a changing market that we're starting to see people think, I won't wait till auction, I'm not going to be as greedy as what I may have been able to be a few months ago. Have you heard about this happening or, or seen any signs of it?
2: Well, yes, I've certainly heard anecdotal evidence of that and it could be, as you say, that vendors are keen to get a sale because they think that there might be greater uncertainty down the track. Uh, it could also be, of course, that uh, would-be buyers are making um higher offers before an auction for fear of missing out. Um. So it's a bit early to tell. I mean, just as an illustration of the same thing, it was reported here in the Tasmanian media over the past week <laughs> that people who haven't been thinking about selling their properties at all, have been getting unsolicited offers dropped into their mailboxes, which I know does happen from time to time in Sydney and Melbourne, but here in Tasmania, that's a highly unusual thing. And uh, it illustrates just the extent to which there is demand for property, and particularly good property, from all sorts of buyers across the spectrum.
1: Mm. So, I'm just going to change gears a little bit now, but what effect do you see the recent federal budget measures having on the property market in the sort of short to medium term?
2: Well, I think the effect of the measures in the budget will be to put further upward pressure on prices, but only at the margin because the numbers involved are relatively small. There were three measures in the budget that I think are relevant here. The first was the decision to increase the amount that people can withdraw from their superannuation funds or more specifically from their voluntary concessional or non-concessional contributions to super funds to make up a deposit. That's been increased from 30,000 to 50,000. Secondly, the government has introduced or extended the scheme they announced last year to allow an additional 10,000 borrowers to take out mortgages with a 5% deposit with the government guaranteeing the other 15% before you need lender's mortgage insurance. Now, again, that only applies to 10,000 people. So it's not an enormous amount. And then finally, the government announced a new scheme to allow single parents, 10,000 of them, to purchase a home with a 2% deposit down. So the intention clearly is to allow more people to take out mortgages than would be the case if they had to stump up the 20% deposit from their own resources. And that will add to the demand for housing, but only in a limited way, given the caps on the number of people eligible for those schemes. Frankly, These disturb me. Um, first of all, because, you know, I don't think we need to add even further to the demand for property at the moment. I think one of the failings of Australian housing policy over the last 50 years really is that we have increasingly adopted policies that have the effect of inflating the demand for housing whilst walking away from policies that were pursued in the immediate post war period that focused for the most part on increasing the supply of housing, whether it was governments doing that directly through their own housing programs or by facilitating the construction of new homes by the private sector. We've walked away from that over the last 50 years. And particularly at the state and local level, governments have adopted policies that make it either more difficult or more expensive or both to increase the supply of housing, particularly at higher densities. And in those circumstances, it's no wonder that house prices have risen from what for almost forty years after the end of World War II were pretty steady average of three times average weekly earnings. To now in Sydney and close to it in Melbourne being more than seven times average weekly earnings. That's been great for people who already own at least one property. But the consequence of it has been that our home ownership rate, which used to be one of the highest in the world, has been falling steadily since the mid-1960s, and at the 2016 census was lower than it had been at any census since that of 1954. Indeed, at the 2016 census, the home ownership rates for people aged under 45 were lower than they had been at any census since the census of 1947, and I suspect when the 2021 census results are released around this time next year, we'll see that there's been a an even greater decline in home ownership rates over the past five years, which I think is both regrettable and testimony to the failure of the kind of policies that governments of both political persuasions have been pursuing to boost the home ownership rate.
1: I suppose to counter that, we know what an obstacle the deposit is for the everyday Australians. How do we help than with home ownership, if not to make that deposit more accessible to them?
2: Well, I think the answer ultimately, and by that I mean the sustainable answer, is to back away from policies that inflate the demand for housing and put upward pressure on prices. But the reality is that in any given year, there will typically be around 100,000 people who succeed in becoming home buyers for the first time. And up to the point at which they do, they want governments to do things that will restrain the rate of growth in house prices. But as soon as they succeed in becoming homeowners, those roughly 100,000 people a year join the 11 million or more other Australians who already own at least one property or the more than 2 million who own two or more properties. And the last thing that those 11 million Australians want governments to do is anything that would put a brake on property price inflation. And so, to put it bluntly, you've got 100,000 people or so who would like the government to take their foot off the property price escalator or accelerator. And you've got 11 million Australians who want the government to keep the foot flat to the floor when it comes to property prices Even the dumbest of our politicians can do that electoral arithmetic, and they do. So I think, excuse the cynicism, the sad reality is that there are far more votes to be had in keeping property prices going up than there are in pursuing policies that would restrain the rate of growth in property prices so that more people could afford to buy them. And that's why the home ownership rate has headed steadily but slowly downwards over the last 50 years.
1: Mm -hmm. So we're also now watching what's going to happen very closely, as always, with interest rates. In the event that we do see a rise in interest rates in this year at some stage, if that does indeed happen, what can buyers and sellers expect the effect of that to be? (laughs)
2: Well, I think when interest rates do go up, the consequences for the property market will become quite quickly noticeable. You know, one of the reasons for the very strong demand for property uh, over most of the past 12 months from first home buyers, although now with the tapering of the very generous federal and state government grant programs for first home buyers, that's now starting to taper off. But investors who withdrew from the market in late 2018, partly, I guess, in anticipation that the Labor Party might win the 2019 election and change the tax treatment of property investment. Uh, When that didn't happen, uh, property investors... took a while to come back to the market, but the lending data show that since late 2020, investors have been coming back into the property market, particularly in Sydney and to a lesser extent Melbourne in quite a big way. So I fear that we're once again seeing a situation where would-be first-home buyers are going to be squeezed out of the property market by people who already own at least one property. But uh, we've seen a lot of people borrow a lot of money to buy property on the expectation that interest rates are going to remain at record lows until, as the Reserve Bank keeps saying, 2024 at the earliest. Now, I don't dispute for a moment the Reserve Bank's judgment that inflation isn't going to start rising to the 2 to 3% target band which they're aiming at until the unemployment rate is sufficiently low to generate higher wage inflation. But in my view, the risk is that we will get to that point somewhat sooner than 2024 at the earliest. Indeed, I think we could be down to the four and a half percent inflation rate that the Reserve Bank is targeting, four and a half percent unemployment rate, I should say, that the Reserve Bank is targeting, uh, perhaps as early as the end of next year, in which case the Reserve Bank does have a dilemma. Do they do what they should do when inflation is beginning to rise or getting back into the 2 to 3% target band which is to start gradually raising interest rates and if they do do that i don't think they'll have to raise them by very much because there is so much household debt out there that even small increases in interest rates will have a significant dampening impact on household spending or do they say to themselves you know we made a sort of promise or at least what people understood was a promise not to raise rates until 2024 at the earliest in their terms. Well, if they do do that, then they may well find that they have to increase interest rates more quickly and by more once they start doing it than would have been necessary if they started doing it when inflation first got to between two and three percent. Neither scenario is particularly attractive for people who've taken out large loans uh, but i think when that happens and we've already seen at least in the past week one of the big four banks lift their fixed rates which is an indication that they're sniffing the breezes to when uh, official interest rates might start to move up, then I think we will see that that's quite a significant dampening influence on property price.
1: Are there any countries around the world doing it right? Do you think so?
2: Well, Singapore, for example, which has seen quite significant property price escalation over the last 20 years, uh, has always done a lot to increase housing supply, uh, including by having the Government-Owned Housing Development Board build a lot of apartments. Um, there are some ugly politics around where some of those apartments are built and renovated, but they have focused on boosting supply and they have sought to restrain demand, particularly from foreign investors, more assertively than most other countries have done. Canada, more recently, although it's seen some quite significant house price inflation, has in recent years made a conscious effort to boost the supply of housing through a variety of government programs. Uh, there are some European countries like Germany. That have been quite successful in avoiding house price inflation over the last 25 years, although they do now seem to be having a bout of it more recently. But of course, countries like Germany, France, Switzerland, Austria, home ownership has never been as important socially as it has been in countries like Australia, New Zealand, and Canada because they have a very different attitude to long term rental. And I'm not suggesting that we could or should uh, adopt their practices in this country. probably wouldn't be a good cultural fit.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's just, it's an intriguing situation we found ourselves in, but I really enjoy your insights into explaining it to us today. So it's been really fascinating talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Property Unpacked, Saul.
2: That's a pleasure, Alice. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share all that with you.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Belong, Australia's first carbon neutral telco. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: What's caused the shift for many of us to start considering how we can reduce our carbon emissions and become more environmentally conscious at home? Hannah from Belong is here to discuss.
1: With so many people focused on climate change, it seems like Australians have decided it's time to take account of their actions and reduce their carbon footprint.
0: Becoming carbon neutral at home is a big deal for a lot of us, but a lot of big companies and events have also decided it's time to change.
1: We've seen major sporting events reducing their carbon footprint. Along with airlines, movie studios and even banks committing to reducing and offsetting their emissions.
0: And telcos too.
3: Yeah, Belong went completely carbon neutral in 2019.
0: To switch to a Belong NBN plan, head to belong.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by Belong, Australia's first carbon neutral telco.
1: Energy policies and schemes have long been debated in Australia and many believe that we're not up to scratch nationally when it comes to issues like climate change and energy efficiency. Surprisingly though, the real estate industry in Canberra is much more advanced in recognising the importance of a more sustainable home. To talk us through what's been happening in the nation's capital is All Homes Editor Josephine Huyn. Josie, welcome to Property Unpacked. Hi Alice, thanks for having me. Now, Josie, let's start from the beginning. What does an energy efficiency rating mean exactly?
3: Well, a house's energy efficiency rating applies to the design of the building shell. So, things like the roof, the walls, windows, and the floor, it all dictates the indoor comfort uh, and energy efficiency performance of a dwelling. A rating is usually out of 10 stars, and homes with a higher rating are considered cheaper to run than a lower star rating. Homes that are, say, zero stars mean that they do almost practically nothing (laughs) to reduce the discomfort of hot or cold weather. Six stars is the minimum standard for most states and territories and 10 stars means that there may not be any need for artificial cooling or heating to keep you comfortable. Wow, so 10 is clearly the gold standard. Now, we're
1: seeing people in the ACT willing to pay more for a higher rated home. Why do you think this is?
3: Well, first of all, the ACT is the only jurisdiction in Australia with a mandatory EER disclosure scheme. So, the ACT government is really advocating for environmentally friendly homes and therefore less greenhouse gas emissions. It's been compulsory when selling a property since 1999 to disclose an EER in the ACT. And since 1997 for rentals. So people have begun to realize that energy costs have gone up and people are putting more value on higher EERs in Canberra at the time of purchasing a property. A home with an EER of zero can cost almost four times as much to run per year than a home with, say, six stars. And there's also been a recent University of Melbourne study that found that a dwelling in the ACT with an EER of six attracts a premium worth about 2%. So, if you're looking at a property that's worth 500000 that can equate to a $10,000 premium. And it's also a similar story in the rental market as well, where a property that's listed for five and six stars will get you around 3.5% premium. And is this becoming sort of common knowledge amongst
1: Canberians? Like, you know, we might sort of think in other states about sort of energy costs of a building or something. Is this becoming sort of at the forefront of people's minds about the money that they can save with a, with a higher energy rating in, on the property?
3: Yeah, certainly. This mandatory scheme helps. It's very transparent and a good step Uh towards making sure that homes are good for the environment. And I guess people are becoming more privy with investing their money now in a home with a good EER, otherwise you'll just have to pay the ongoing price later when the bills start to roll in. It sort of reminds me of knowing your Uber rating, I suppose. Do you know what I mean?
1: <laughs> and I'm not saying it's as lighthearted as that, but it does sort of remind me of this thing about how sort of responsible are you in the way you conduct and carry yourselves <laughs> throughout life, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you have a very stellar Uber rating. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not quite sure about that, but hopefully. I do. Um, now, Josie, what are the ways to
3: increase the EER of a home? There's plenty of ways. For instance, if you're building a home from the ground up, it's always good to enlist an architect who knows their stuff. So, things like positioning the house to the north in order to soak up that free warmth over winter, but ensuring the house is well shaded over summer. If you're searching for a property at open homes, you should look for good insulation. Buildings should be relatively airtight. Windows are also key. Double-glazed windows certainly should be at the top of your checklist. And uh, a lot of people don't realise that EER is actually based off square metre. So the smaller the home, the more energy efficient it is. Other simple steps are to seal gaps. So where warm or cool air can escape through cracks around windows and doors. Another tip is reverse cycle air conditioner units. Every degree that you lower on the thermostat can reduce your heating bill by as much as 10%. And another one that's, you know, really easy fixes, it's easier said than done, but your little creature comforts. So the electric blanket or hot water bottle will use much less energy than trying to heat your entire bedroom or your entire home. And the biggest consumer of energy is your hot water consumption. So shorter showers, wash clothes in cold water if you can Um, but again it's easier said than done because at the end of a long working day all all I'm looking forward to is a long hot shower. Mm -hmm. Josie is it correct then that
1: having potentially like extra carpets or heavier drapes and that sort of thing in a home won't affect the EER, given that they're sort of cosmetic flourishes not the structure of
3: the home? Yeah, that's right. It will reduce in the costs of heating and cooling your home, but it won't actually influence the EER. So, the EER is, I guess, fixtures, Uh, so things around the shell that contribute to the shell of the building. Josie, do you think something like this would work nationally, or are there any schemes you're aware of that are already in place? Well, there's a bunch of government schemes and programs to help combat low EERs and cut energy costs. I know in the ACT, Victoria, and New South Wales, there's discounts that are offered to install things like LED lighting, energy-efficient appliances, as well as interest-free loans for solar panels. There's also a federal government scheme that provides a subsidy for small-scale renewable systems, and there's also rebates that you can apply for to help households that are facing energy bill stress. They're given digital vouchers to help pay electricity or gas bills. But there's little help to create change at the source of increasing the EER. I think these are all band-aid approaches, replacing old appliances or temporarily fixing something that may be already broken. But why don't we just build it right from the get-go? Because when you think about it, when homeowners decide to sell or when tenants decide to move on, all they're going to do is unplug these appliances and plug them into the next low EER home that they move into. So it's about creating that change, changing the EER of your current home so you can pass that legacy on to the next person. Something that really moves the needle, I agree, is required when it
1: comes to such an important issue such as this. Mm. So it really does sound like Canberra's leading the way. So I'm intrigued to see if this is going to roll out further because I think it's a really interesting way. And, And we know that sometimes, like stamp duty we've seen this happen with, Canberra does become the test case for what can roll out around the rest of the country. So fingers crossed, we see some progressive change in the other states and territories retreats exactly fingers crossed fingers and toes everything crossed (laughs) josie thanks so much for talking to us on property unpacked thanks alice for having me
0: this podcast is brought to you by belong australia's first carbon neutral telco and winner of finders green telco of the year 2020
1: You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and have new episodes delivered to you as soon as they drop. Our executive producer is Adrian Lowe, with production by Hayley Cools and editing and mixing by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au or download the Domain app. Thanks
3: for listening. Talk to you soon.